0: Hi, this is episode 146, and today we're going to be talking about bringing together international parenting perspectives. I have an interview with an Indian mother who is looking to bring together both the Western and Eastern parenting philosophies to find the best of both worlds. You are listening to the Simple
1: Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with
0: family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Thanks for tuning into episode 146. Today, we're going to be exploring an area that I am infinitely curious about that's international perspectives in parenting. I think that we here in the U.S. tend to have the idea that we know it all and that our way is the best way. So I'm excited to hear from parents from different parts of the world. Before we jump into this episode, here's today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Simple Context. And when I first took this sponsor on last year, I thought to myself, A mail order contact company, this sounds a little boring, but it's proved to be one of the sponsors that has been the most interesting and most well-loved by my audience members. Because here's the thing, it's not just a mail order contact company. It's incredibly convenient. So the Simple Contacts app has a vision test built into it. It takes less than five minutes. So rather than having to make a yearly appointment to go to the optometrist to get your eyes examined, you can simply renew your contact lens prescription on the app. The vision test is only $20 and you can do it from the comfort of your own home. And the prices for the contact lenses are unbeatable. So I know that you probably have a million things that are demanding your time, and getting a babysitter or getting out of work to get to a contact lens appointment isn't always easy. So I encourage you to give Simple Contacts a try. If you go to simplecontacts.com forward slash simple20 and use the code simple20 at checkout, you'll get $20 off. Again, that's simplecontacts.com forward slash simple20 and use the code simple20 at checkout. And you'll get $20 off. But remember, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Give it a try. I think you're going to love it. Let's get back to today's episode. I'm excited to introduce you to Devi Shoba Shandramuli. Devi Shoba is an Indian mother raising her children in India. And she's looking to bring together the Eastern and Western parenting philosophies. She's a writer and the founder of kidskintha.com. That's K-I-D-S-K-I-N-T-H-A dot And later this month, she's hosting an online conference to bring together all of these ideas. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. Simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 146. Devi Shoba has the unique perspective of being familiar with both the Eastern and traditional Indian parenting philosophies and the Western, more Americanized parenting philosophies. And today I'm excited to have her with me to answer some questions about how things are different and how things are the same, and what we can learn from the Indian culture. She admits that merging these two worlds isn't always easy. The Indians have high expectations on kids being able to control themselves as they get older. They're strong believers in co-sleeping and have an ancient foundation of mindfulness in their culture. In our chat, Devi Shoba is sharing more about the postpartum practices that she experienced after having her kids, along with the efforts that she's making to raise two strong and courageous young women. I hope you enjoy our chat today. Hi, Devi Shoba. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It's my pleasure.
0: I am really interested to talk with you and to learn more about your culture and Indian parenting and family life. I think that as Americans, I know as an American myself, it can be really easy to get caught up with how we do things here and thinking it's sort of the best way or the only way. But I think that so many of the international communities have so much to offer us.
1: Right. It's, it's my privilege. I would love to talk about India and, uh, I would love to, you know, see what we can exchange from each other. Uh, I know I'm sure a lot of things from the West that we can uh, imbibe as well. And there is a lot of our stuff to offer to you as well. So it, it's going to be a great experience. I look forward to it.
0: Well, can you start by telling me a little bit about you and where you live and who your family is?
1: Sure. So my uh, my name is Devi Shoga, as you already introduced, and I grew up for most part, for the most part, in, in in the southern city of India. It's called Hyderabad. It's a pretty hot place. Uh, India is a place that has, you know, several different languages, several different cultures, several different cuisines. Uh, for every, you know, probably like hundred uh, kilometers, you'll find a different cuisine, different culture, different practices. And the place that I grew up in. Um, we speak Telugu. It's it's a it's a native language to this area, and because we have so many languages and so many cultures uh, around us, Indians are, I think, fairly uh, they grow up fairly tolerant, and they they naturally understand that you know uh, the other cultures can be different from theirs, um, and we are. We we are used to speaking multiple languages from a very young age as well. So a typical Indian child will be speaking, um, you know, two or three languages, um, you know, at, by the age of three. And that's where I grew up, and I I can speak about five languages um, now, uh, all Indian and plus English. Also, um, I grew up and then I I studied engineering and I you know, moved for my master's to the U.S. I studied in the, I studied at the Arizona State University. I did my master's of computer science there. And then I came back to India. Um, I met uh, my husband and we got married and we have two kids now, or both girls. And uh, I was in the IT, I, I worked in the IT corporate world for about 12 years uh, before the writing bug caught me. And, that's uh, about, after about two or three years of doing both, you know, juggling both my personal writing and my work and my, my family, I decided to quit my corporate career and just focus on, you know, my writing and my, my blog. And my blog is called Kids Kinta and
0: this is where I am now. So how old are your kids now?
1: My kids are, uh, they're just one year and four months apart. Uh, My older one is 13 and my younger one is, she will turn
0: 12 in April. Oh, okay. And so how long have you been living back in India?
1: So we've been married for about 15 years now.
0: Okay. So you lived in the U.S. and then got married and then moved back.
1: Yeah. When I got married to him, we moved
0: back. So it was,
1: um, yeah, it's about 14 and a half years ago.
0: Okay. So tell me about your career at this point, your writing and the community that you're building online. Is that mainly those of Indian descent or do you have a worldwide following?
1: I do have a worldwide following because um, most of my writing is about emotional development, emotional health, emotional coaching. And I write based on a lot of research that happens in the field and most of it happens, um, you know, in the U.S. And I try to imbibe and merge some of our ancient teachings along with modern research, and that's what I write about. And based on this, to further this mission of, you know, bringing emotional health and well-being to families. Um, so, so one of the premise, uh, one of the basic um, foundations of our blog is that we believe that to to raise emotionally healthy children we need emotionally healthy adults right and it's not really that common because adults have their issues their baggage uh, that comes and that doesn't go away when you become a parent right it doesn't automatically go away you have to work on it and that's that's how we build built this this um, there's all this community around, uh, this entire blog around, and that's, that's our focus. So the research that we that I bring on the blog is, is all about, you know, how we have merged, how, uh, for example, mindfulness, meditation from ancient cultures, how it has merged into modern living, how much of research is actually uh, showing that the way people lived in our cultures a long time ago, is actually a good way to live, and people are struggling to go back to it because that is good for them. But they're struggling to reconcile their current lifestyles with the, you know, with the practices that are apparently good for them. And uh, this entire focus is on how to how to be able to, um, you know, combine them in a healthy fashion so that we we are we are more we are. We are also connected in the modern world, uh, but also we we do not lose out on our roots. You know that's that's the main focus, and as a as a way to forward this mission, I am actually running a conference um, in February where I'm bringing 28 researchers, experts, and writers, doers who have done very impactful work, uh, either their writing or some project that they've worked on that has affected Affected a lot of people worldwide. And uh, this is a conference that brings them together. And I am interviewing a lot of them, bringing a lot of concepts together. And uh, that is going live in February. So
0: that's exciting. I mean, this is, I think that there's so much potential for this area. I mean, here in the US, mindfulness and some of the ancient Indian practices are just starting to pick up speed. And we don't really have that ancient foundation like you all do. Do you see in India that people are becoming overwhelmed with busyness and stuff and clutter, just like here in the U S
1: well, definitely busyness. Um, because see, first of all, we have certain challenges in the, in India that we do not have in the U S probably you have a different set of challenges, but in India we have the challenge of, uh, uh there's too much population and there's less space, you know, for everyone to move around. And there's less infrastructure. Obviously, at least for me, you know, personally, when I was working, one of my biggest time drainers was um, traffic. I hated going out in traffic because I, I used to see that um, my 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 entire day about 3 or 4 hours of my day is spent on on the on the street driving cursing <laughs> that i can spend working or you know <laughs> being with my kids that was a huge stress for me personally and i think a lot of lot of other people um face the same thing too uh, but other than that i think spiritually i think india and indian people um we are more centered, you know, towards uh, certain practices in spirituality that keeps us grounded. Um, and I really appreciate that. Um, every every single house, you know, in, in India has a separate, um, a, a different, a separate space allotted for prayers. Uh, we do not, we maintain a lot of sanctity, uh, you know, around that space. We do not use Um, slippers around that space we do not bring food uh, only to uh, we do not eat you know around that space we do not um, we only bring food to offer it uh, to the gods and then take it back so we maintain a lot of sanctity and cleanliness around that place so I think these practices help us to be more grounded uh, more conscious uh, when we're living you know our everyday lives and that is actually Uh, kind of ingrained in children from very early on. Um, We, at least in my household, um, when I was growing up, uh, doing my prayer every day in the morning and the evening was, you know, it was not like, it was not like my parents imposed it on me, it was just done, you know, because everybody was doing it. It was my family practice. And that's how it got ingrained in me. And I think this, Uh, the the prayer and and the the quality of uh, cleanliness, maintaining sanctity towards certain things, I think it keeps us a lot more grounded. And um, as for clutter, well, we we place a lot of emphasis on reuse, um, Indians, because I think Indians place um, a lot of value in thrift. You know, for example, as... As a child, I remember my my mom, um, you know, telling us that we could never throw away the unused paper uh, in our notebooks. You know, after the academic year, we were all encouraged. In fact, she used to do it with us after every academic year during the summer holidays. She would sit with us, rip off the pages that were unused and she would stitch them together into a new uh, notebook for us, you know to be just used for practice over the next academic year. There's a lot of emphasis on reuse. And I definitely think we do not buy as much stuff as uh, our Western counterparts uh, for the simple reason that we do not have as much space, you know, to store away all those uh, things, you know, and we, we do not, we definitely do not buy so much. Like I see, uh, I see my um, Western uh, friends buy uh, a lot of bags, a lot of shoes. Uh, we do too. We love them, but I think we also emphasize on you know clearing away stuff before we bring new stuff. So that's I think that's a that's a very um, nice way to keep clutter out uh, of the home and. Um, so that's, that's, I think these are some basic principles that we work on. We never throw away food. Uh, there are a lot of, in India, I feel, uh, and we do not store food in the refrigerator as much as well, at least uh, not in my home. I don't do that. I give away leftovers to, to people who who want to eat, you know. So every day I just give away stuff. I do not store them. And I, I, I cook fresh every day. And because I like to do it for my family. I don't, I don't like eating leftovers and I think it's, it's, it's a very uh, simple investment in health, you know, and also a mindful practice in cooking. So that's what I do and that's what my mother did and that's what my mother-in-law does and I think it's pretty natural for us.
0: So when you say you give away food, is it to other family members or just people in the community?
1: Oh, just people in the community.
0: So, what about kids stuff? Can you tell me about how much and what type of stuff your kids have, like toys and clothing?
1: Yeah, so we do have um western outfits we do have so there's this there's their school stuff the the books um and then the stationery, their geometry boxes and fences, all of that stuff, and I buy a few journals for them every year. I also buy a lot of books for them, but now because of the Kindle, uh, they are old enough to read on the Kindle. So I don't, uh, I, by the way, because I write, uh, I, I run this blog, I get a lot of books for review, uh, but otherwise I prefer the electronic copy unless I find a copy uh, that is really interesting and I really want to, you know, have it for keeps uh, in my library. Um, but when I get these uh, copies, I I read them and then I donate them to the library as well. So so they have these books and uh, we have some traditional clothes, Indian traditional clothes that we wear, uh, have them wear on festivals. Like we have a lot of festivals in India. Uh, We have starting from January to December, almost every month, we have something more or less significant. Uh, We have um, about five major festivals during the year that we buy new clothes for uh for the whole family and definitely during diwali that comes around september uh, october november every family member buys new clothes every family member and then we have their birthdays so we buy new clothes for them on those days as well um and of course when it's it's one person's one child's birthday we also buy clothes for the other one so it's two, you know two sets of new clothes on their birthdays just on their birthdays and then the the festivals and and other things so uh that's their clothes and uh also um western outfit like you know uh, jeans and uh night pants and suits and stuff like that uniforms um and then we have we have they have their own room but they only use it to keep their stuff but they sleep in our room. So one of the things in Indian culture is that we do not, uh, our culture doesn't really um, get the concept of, of uh, you know, putting the babies uh, to sleep in a different room. You know, we always co-sleeping is never debated. Uh, it's never even given a second thought. It's like it's like second nature. And everybody does it. Uh, and our children still sleep in our rooms. And uh, uh, sometimes, sometimes we do. Sometimes they do want to sleep in their own rooms. But uh, you know, largely we don't really, we don't really, really insist on that. So that's uh, something. And then, um, yeah, the books and the stationery and the journals and their personal stuff. And that's it.
0: Okay, so now that your your girls are getting to be a little older, 12 and 13, how do you feel like having this basis in mindfulness has really helped with their frustration tolerance and their ability to be present in a daily basis?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the... Uh, as, a, as a practice in Indian families... We do not encourage unnecessary outbursts, especially in children. It's not as if we use force, but it's generally discouraged. Uh, we talk about it and we tell them, um, you know, alternative ways to handle their um, their frustration. But it's definitely, except for younger kids, like, you know, if they're toddlers, obviously they they are bound to throw tantrums. But, you know, around the age of six or seven, Um, There is a general expectation that children are able to manage their emotional, you know, frustrations. And then it's also very clear, clearly communicated to them that they can come and talk to their parents. Their parents are available for anything. You know, they can absolutely count on their support. So emotional frustration In terms of overwork, uh, anxiety, at least I have not seen too much in my kids. Uh, There were some health issues that definitely produced a lot of stress for my child, my older one. Um, But otherwise, I do not see that as a big challenge, at least in my family. Uh, Because I see uh, that my, this comes from my husband, especially because I see that he he has taken care to, uh, you know, Im- um, to instill these values in them that when you're angry, you have to pay more more attention to how you calm yourself. You know, be more aware of how you're expressing your anger, and um, yeah, that's that. I think it's more of practice, and uh, it's just a general thing. Um, I don't think we we you know, put any specific effort into that. It's just just how they see the adults doing it and that's how they imbibe it.
0: So if kids are expected to be able to manage their frustration more or less by the time they're getting to be of school age, what does that look like for adults? Do you still see a lot of adults yelling at their kids like we do here in the U.S.? Or do adults generally have a better grip on their frustration as well?
1: yeah there's definitely yelling <laughs> there is definitely um spanking i think a little bit uh, not so much uh, as before definitely and th- there are some families that that do not do it at all the more evolved families but i think in general uh, indian families believe like my dad used to believe that children should not be spanked at all you know if you, if they spank- if they are spanked that means you do not um, you do not know how to parent you know that's that's that was his belief, and that's what he, he has never ever spanked us and uh that was a that was a value we grew up with and um but that doesn't mean that uh you know adults uh manage their frustrations very well between them you know i have seen I've seen my parents yell at each other and so, I think they have a different set of expectations for for the for the children and for adults, so I think children um we believe that children should be you know treated differently, they cannot take the burden of our frustrations um, and um, I think we pretty much know how to segregate it.
0: Okay, that's interesting that you say that children cannot take the burden of our frustrations because yeah. I think that that is such an important thing to recognize that it happens all the time, every day in most of our lives.
1: Yes, yeah, and i tri- uh, definitely try to keep it that way, but uh, well i'm <laughs> I, I I think I, I succeed about eighty percent of the time, but definitely twenty percent
0: is 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 a failure. Okay. Well, it's good to hear that you're still human too, (laughs) because I feel like that is universal. I was actually talking with a mom the other day and I was having, and I was talking to her about, she's a stay at home mom. And I said, I said, is there a certain time of the day that things, you know, start to break down and you start to get frustrated. And then I rephrased my question. I was like, wait a minute. No. I'm like, what is the time of the day? Not, is there a certain time of the day? Because I think we all do reach that breaking point, especially when we're home with our kids all day, every day, as a stay at home mom, I think you're, you're going to see that that breaking point hit on most days, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And that's universal. So. (laughs) So tell me about your journey into motherhood and the type of support that mothers receive in the postpartum period and in the early years.
1: Sure. Um, I think this is going to be very, very interesting for you to hear. So in India, at least for me, um, first of all, we have a long maternity leave. We have all the corporates here. We have about 12 weeks of maternity leave. Uh, and then we can also extend. That's paid maternity leave. And then uh, we can extend it to about six months. When I was uh, go, you know, uh, an expecting mother, it was six months of unpaid. Three more months of unpaid leave, and then now it's one year. You can take up to one year of of uh, unpaid maternity leave. Uh, yeah, that's the corporate part of it. That's that's what you receive from work, um, but. Expectant mothers in India, um, I think there's a lot of care, I- implicit care that surrounds them because, you know, when you're pregnant, you're given special importance, you're given everybody in the family pampers you, you know, they give you, <laughs> it's not necessarily healthy, but you get all sorts of foods, you know, from all sorts of uh, corners, you know, people congratulating you just want, giving you sometimes unsolicited advice, Uh, a lot of um, sweets, Indian sweets. I don't know if you've tasted them ever, uh,
0: but no, I haven't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you should. Uh, So they're, they're just uh, delicious though. I'm not, I, I, I'm not really uh, a person with a sweet tooth, uh, but I know a lot of people who who do that. And I was, uh, I also developed a sweet tooth during my pregnancies. Um, and then there's a lot of food and there's a lot of pampering there's a lot of uh, special attention uh, in families like you know in in probably the middle class and the upper middle class families i know a lot of uh, you know uh, in this in the lowest social economic strata it could be still very very challenging because the women are still expected to do physical hard labor during their, their pregnancies uh, but i think our general attitude towards pregnancy is that it is a very natural healthy uh, thing and there is it's a thing to celebrate and you call something you you do something called the baby shower right yes yeah we also do something um, that's very similar and the, and the bride uh, sorry not the bride The expectant mother is, you know, dressed up and then she's um, pampered with a lot of food and uh, she's decked up, you know, with bangles. Uh, You know, we, we make every 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 woman in the household, like from the extended family, friends, other relatives, they, you know, they make the the expectant mother wear bangles. And that's a sign of prosperity and a blessing for the child so you know generally there is a lot of support uh, for the expectant mother and um, after delivery um, usually the the, the 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 mother goes to her parents house for delivery um, and uh, after the childbirth uh, you know she is taken care of by the parents um, and our food regimen uh, is really very very uh, strict you know we after childbirth we cannot eat like very oily foods uh, we do not give them foods that are hard to digest and um, for for lactation there are certain herbal and natural foods that are given for example garlic um, and then there is a kind of greens it's called I don't know what you call it in the US but we call it subsige uh, in in India in the in the part where I live um, you know, these are herbal uh, natural foods that can, you know, aid in a lot of lactation and it keeps the mother healthy, it produces, a, it, it's naturally, um, it's a natural antibiotic. So it keeps away infections for the mom and for the baby. Um, and then we are advised massages, you know, the oil massages. So we, like when I was pregnant, my mother-in-law used to insist that I, um do an oil massage with sesame oil every day to prevent stretch marks and that really helped it kept oh, interesting my, yeah it kept my my it kept my body relaxed i felt really uh, i didn't feel the stretch i didn't feel uh, the stress uh, and it kept my face glowing so i think there's a lot of uh, emphasis on natural or ancient practices in food, as well as the way we take care of our body, um, even after after childbirth, like when we have when we wash our hair, um, my my mother in law used to insist that I uh, there's a certain thing called sambrani um, uh, in our in our culture, and that what you do is you put it over the fire, and there's smoke coming out of it. It's very fragrant smoke. And when you use that to dry your hair, you smell good, and it feels very relaxing. It's like aromatic therapy, Um, so it keeps it. It really relaxes your body because for the new mom, there's a lot of stress, and even uh, during those stressful times, it can really, really calm and relax her. So these are certain, you know, intrinsic practices that have come from generations that have really kept a, a, you know, a, a cloud of support around the new mother. And I think that's great for, for Indian mothers.
0: So are most families living close to their extended families to make this possible? Or do you see them traveling to spend this time with their mothers and aunts and other family members that can help, us, help to support them?
1: It still happens. I see a lot of friends still doing, uh, except the friends in the US, some of them have really, you know, migrated there and it's really hard for them to come back here. So I see the mothers going there to support their daughters. Uh, But within India, I still see a lot of them going to their parents' homes for childbirth and it keeps them uh, feeling supported and um, it's generally a very, uh, lovely bonding time for the, for the mother and daughter as well.
0: So did you say that y- usually you give birth at your mother and father's home? Yes. Okay. And then about how long do you stay there?
1: For about two to two months, two months, definitely till, because we think that it takes 12 weeks for the body to recover and, uh, yeah, it's at least two months. Depending on of course, there are various factors like if the if the if the lady is working, then she has to get back to work, so she will bring her mother along with her or she'll do something. but generally, you know, I'm talking about practices um, that are not really disrupted too much, so this is this is the general time frame
0: so what about older children? Would they come along and spend that time with their grandparents?
1: Yes, the child is always believed. Uh, We always believed that the child until at least till the age of, you know, 10 should stay with their mom, you know, wherever she is.
0: So when you say that children must stay with their mothers for the most part until they're about 10, do you find that Indian women will go on weekend or week long trips away from their children or do they usually stay with them completely for those years?
1: Oh, no, because... um, because we see a lot of working women now. There are lots more and more women going out to work. Um, there's a lot of uh, change in the expectations. Earlier, uh, women were, even now, I think, with all the all the burden of, you know, being a working woman as well, uh, the expectation of uh, running the household, uh, running the home, is still largely on the on the woman. And uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they cannot leave their children at all. I was talking about more like, you know, when when the mother goes away for two months to, you know, with the baby, uh, the older child will always, almost always accompany the, the mother unless in the in case of um, an extreme situation. So,
0: OK. Yeah. For longer periods of time. Yes. Yes. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, so there's never a debate about, you know, whether to keep the children uh, with the father or, or you know, send them send them away with the mother. It's always a mother, right? So it's never, okay. never a debate, yes.
0: Okay, so when now that I feel like you definitely have one foot into the Western parenting world with the work that you're doing, but one foot in the Indian world as well, do you feel like sometimes your individual parenting styles conflict with what the way that you were raised or the way that your parents and your in-laws want to see your children raised?
1: Yeah, I do see a bit of a conflict uh, because when we were growing up, we were just expected to listen to our parents. We were, there's not a lot of questioning, um, that was encouraged. Um, even though, um, uh, so my, my parents were, I would say, between, you know, they would fall somewhere between strict and permissive, you know. So uh, <laughs> I don't know what to call that. But um, I don't know how they managed it. I think they did it very well. But uh, they were they were able to give us the freedom but also not have us question them too much. I think they managed it very well. I find that a challenge. Um We do not stop our children from questioning us at all, uh, which is more of a a Western concept. Uh, There's a lot of individual thought uh, that we encourage children with. Um, But we also strive to reconcile the the two styles of, you know, following a code of conduct uh, within the family. Like, I do not like my children talking in a disrespectful manner, uh, even though they do not like what I'm saying, you know. I expect them to respond in a certain respectful way. Uh, I expect them to respond that they do not like what I'm saying. They differ from what I'm saying. Uh, They can say that, but they cannot use a disrespectful tone with me or my husband or even their grandparents. I discourage it. Um, And uh, even my, my husband Uh, people agree on that so that tone of respect that conduct of uh, that that code of conduct is very important in our family so we do not raise voices with with the elders at home Uh, we can definitely uh, and it gets too much you know especially with with the grandparents I see a lot of conflict between my father and my daughter right now because she's at the tween stage adolescent stage uh, and she's used to a certain kind of parenting. She's used to discussing differences. She's used to putting out her thoughts with us. But it's my father is not uh, really used to this kind of thing. So when he says something, he uh, she definitely questions him, you know. And he he doesn't like it. And I can see that conflict. And I I try to discourage too much of an argument there. I try to teach her, you know, to keep um, her perspective uh, and then, you know, just um, put it out there that she doesn't entirely agree and she she doesn't entirely agree on certain points. But you cannot really discount everything that he says. You know, you have to be respectful to his point of view. So that's that's a little bit of a challenge area for me. Um yeah, that's that's. I think that's one of the biggest challenge areas for me, and uh, the same with my mother-in-law. So when she visits, and I have a certain way of dealing with my children, but when she doesn't agree, um, she kind of tries to, you know, tell tell me or my husband that you know this is not the right way. And um, well, because it's my mother-in-law, I I do not de- you know generally go and tell her um, uh, that I do not agree with her, but it definitely produces a little bit of conflict in, in our parenting ways. But yeah, that's, um, I think that's a part of life and, uh, I think we've learned to manage it.
0: Right. And I imagine that raising two young women to have opinions and to question things and to be strong role models, is that sort of new and still, um, still not an ingrained part of the Indian culture yet, or do you see that changing?
1: Um, well, I do not um, endorse the fact that women were not encouraged to think independently uh in the Indian culture. In fact, we've had a lot of women who have taken up extremely, um, you know, radical roles in their communities, in their families, um So women were definitely not really discouraged, but I think over the medieval years, some of it had changed and male domination had become rampant. Um, But I still see intrinsically that um, the strength of women is definitely respected. You know, uh, strength of women, you know, mental, mental strength of women. I see my, as when I was growing up, one of the things that I remember most from my uh, conversations in my family is that my my father was a banker and he used to meet a lot of uh, people. And I remember when he when he used to speak about those some of his customers or his um, staff members. Uh, whenever he referred to women, um, he always used to you know, describe them as, I, I remember this word uh, that he used to describe them most often. He always used to say, she is very intelligent, you know, she's very brainy, very intelligent, and she's very capable. So, you know, that sort of became like an expectation uh, in our home, at least. And I think my father is a very orthodox man because he was, he's really in inbred in, in the Indian culture. Uh, but that didn't stop him from respecting women for their capabilities. That's, and I didn't realize it as a child, uh, but I realize it more and more as I'm growing older and I'm seeing things around me with a different perspective. So it helps me understand, um, what his values were. And even though he did not, uh, encourage, uh, by the way we all were three girls you know we had no boys at home we were we were all oh you have two sisters yes I have two sisters yeah so when we were growing up um, it was all girls and naturally he was concerned for our safety so we were discouraged from doing certain things that we really wanted to do as teens and adolescents and at that time it threw us off um, you know as being discriminatory or uh, you know otherwise something stupid. But now I realize it wasn't that at all. His values were more is way, way deeper. And uh, he wanted for us to be ingrained in a in a much more stable sense of identity um and not go after superficial um symbols of identity, and I realize that now. So, I believe that Indian culture really does not um, put down women. Uh, I mean, it depends on the way you see it, uh, but I think it's it's depicted in a certain way. If depicted in a certain way, it definitely seems like that, but it's not really so, um, because we have a lot of women who've done things first, taken up radical roles in the communities, and um, so there's when i said there's a con- conflict between my my father and my daughter it's never really about you know um taking taking her life in a certain way or uh, in a certain direction uh, or uh, you know trying to trying to put her uh, perspective in, in the in in the name of feminism in a different a different way. Uh, but he doesn't like certain you know, women to be dressed in a certain way because of safety issues and other things. But these are all I think very superficial things. But I think the core identity of a woman, of being very capable, very intelligent, smart, independent, that has always taken a very deep place in our families and in our culture. And I think that's really important to identify and respect.
0: Good. Well thank you for explaining that. That does really help me to feel like I have a better, a better grasp as well. So I love this work that you're doing connecting the two different worlds together. And I'm really excited about this conference that you have coming up. So I want to make sure to share that with everyone. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Um, Is there a link to sign up? Can you tell us more about that? It's an online conference, right?
1: Yes, it's a completely online conference. Uh, People can join in from anywhere. Um, All you have to do is just log on to www.kidskinta. That's my blog, kidskinta.com slash online hyphen summit. And you will see the form where you can just put in your name and email and you will be registered to the conference. The conference begins on February 15th um, and ends on February 18th. And we have 28 speakers speaking on various uh, topics of challenges that come uh, in today's parenting. Um, So we have about seven to eight speakers Uh, speaking every day and each of those talks is available for free for 48 hours uh, and you can just log in and you know check them out
0: great well I look forward to sharing that with my listeners and then I'll share it on social media as well because I think it's a great resource thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today oh that was a pleasure Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you're interested in learning more about Davy Shoba and her work, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 146 and you'll find the links in the show notes there. I greatly appreciate your support and thank you for tuning in.